One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com/acast. Hello everybody, I'm Marcus Speller and welcome to the Barcelona Legacy Podcast. This is the fourth of a six-part series to coincide with the release of the Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola. It's written by one of our panellists, Jonathan Wilson, who writes for The Guardian, Sports Illustrated and World Soccer. And it's out this month in hardback, ebook, and audiobook. We're also joined today by Miguel Delaney, who is the chief football writer at The Independent. So, Jonathan, in this podcast series, we're going to be looking at six matches that define this footballing evolution from Christ Barcelona to Guardiola's Manchester City. This time we're looking at the Champions League final in 2009 between Barcelona and Manchester United. It's an obvious one, Jonathan, but why have we looked at this fixture? I think this was the first time we really realised just how good a coach Guardiola was. And I think it was the first time we really realised just how Cruyff's philosophy could be applied in the modern age. So four years on from the last one we did, um, 2005, the football we're looking at was still, it was, we're still in that sort of post-Greece, post-year 2004 feeling of, of football's gone a bit more defensive, it's a bit more, a bit more stringent, it's a bit more physical. Rijkaard, who was the, the losing coach of Barcelona in, in that last game, uh, he, he wins the Champions League in 2006, and that's really the foundations for this Barcelona. You then have Ferguson's Manchester United wins the Champions League in, in 2008, beating Chelsea in the final. And so this is the defending champions against this new Barcelona side who've been very fortunate to get by Chelsea in the semi-final. And I think most of us, I think well, certainly all three of us, who are all at the game, I think we all expected United to win. And within sort of quarter of an hour, it was pretty obvious that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> and actually, you're watching something something pretty special. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? How uh, in football, these kind of things sort of hinge on moments. And of course, in the semi final, they were lucky, well, fortunate certainly. Or some might, some people described it as a disgrace, didn't they? Um, <laughs> but less said about that, the better, perhaps. But they were in the final, and I remember thinking personally, for me, despite uh, Chelsea's efforts, this th- this was a match up between the, the two best sides in Europe, and you thought to yourself, Miguel, well, it's Ferguson's Manchester United. They're in a final. They know what they're doing. But as Jonathan said, was it 10 minutes, 12 minutes or something like that? When Barcelona scored after Manchester United's early running, it was all of them. And we just saw this Pep Guardiola team just suddenly take over the show. And that became the way they played football. Yeah, this is it. And it feels like in that 10 minutes, this was the leap that the side made. Because I suppose one of the reasons why this match is so significant beyond obviously winning the Champions League it's not just that it's also had it just been a league and cup double in that first season it would have been okay it's it's obviously been a good season for, for Guardiola he's taken over what was an ailing Barca and he's restored a competitiveness to them 
but to actually do a treble, it, it, that, it, I mean, that's why it had a sort of deeper symbolism to it. Um, but yeah, I was going into the game, I think maybe it's because of that Chelsea match and the nature of it. And I mean, that, that was a really 50-50 game. Uh, they're quite lucky to get uh, the decision. Or, well, <laughs> in some decisions... <laughs> well, we we that, should say what happened in that game. So, so Chelsea yeah. would tell you they've denied four clear penalties. I think if you look back at it, one and a half, I'd say. One and a half. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, even then, it takes a, a brilliant last minute goal from Iniesta to win it. It's Iniesta! Two minutes from time, and it's heartbreaking. For, for Barcelona. On away goals. On away goals, yeah, yeah. It's certainly my thought was United will physically overpower Barca in the final, as Chelsea had actually looked like physically overpowering mm-hmm. in, in the semi. It was kind of, it was a, a slightly softer Barca than two years later when they when they beat United. They, they, I mean, I suppose they were, still weren't fully formed in that way by then. And there, there were some kind of gaps in the lineup that maybe Guardiola actually rectified for that final. Well, they also, I mean, let's, let's not forget, they were without um, Dani Alves and yeah. Abidal through suspension. Well, they played, Silvino played. Yeah. He did, but Silvino Toure was centre-half, wasn't he? Toure played centre-back and Puyol played right-back. Yeah, mm. so... Yeah, so it was makeshift is perhaps too strong a word, but I, well, I suppose in the context of it, it, it was. Well, you certainly looked at the that, back line, that, that matchup between um, yeah, Puyol um, against. I mean, I, I think we thought that Ronaldo might drift out to the side as it turned out. Rooney played on that flank, mm. but the thought of Ronaldo running at Puyol, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that's going to make you sleep easy if you were Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there was there was one moment early on when Ronaldo did exactly that, didn't they? And then United got a free kick out of it. And, yeah, and he hit one of those low scudding yeah. free kicks and, and Valdez sort of slightly, um, he didn't take it cleanly. Looked a yeah. little bit nervy. And then, and then you know, that first 10 minutes, it really looked like United yeah. would, would do what we thought they'd do and physically impose themselves. Your Guardiola had, had uh, created this montage of great Barca moments from that season, set it to, to the gladiator music. Um, because you know, it was in Rome, so I guess mm. it was a, a level of appropriateness, <laughs> but incredibly sort of mawkish. Yeah. And players, you, know, you talk to players now about this. This is in the dressing room before the it game. Was, yeah, they were so moved by this, they were, they were crying. And you wonder if almost they were a bit too emotionally hyped up. Mm. Um, but then also there's a clever tactical switch that Barca started with Samueletta through the middle and Messi on the right. And after 10 minutes, they switched them over. Uh, so you've got Messi playing as a false nine. And almost immediately, Iniesta breaks down the right. This is Iniesta, though. Oh, Eto's opened it up. Well, how about that for smashing grab? It's been all Manchester United, but after nine minutes... 4-3 for Eto, who turns inside actually far too easily, and then a shot in the near post. Faster ahead. And after that, they, they barely lost the ball. You, know, no, you never look back. Never Do look you think back. the switch was planned, actually, or was something he reacted to? Because no, he, I, I think it was planned. Yeah, because he had played Messi there for the, the, the 6-2 Classico. against, right? Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm certain it was planned. Mm. And, and, and and in that game, you know, then Messi, uh, Iniesta and Xavi in particular just had a lovely old time, well, quite frankly, well, and they took the game by the scruff of the neck. And that, you know, the, 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 the words tiki-taka, yeah. you know, that's when uh, certainly in this country we became a bit more aware of all that kind well, of stuff. Well, I think we should explain that phrase as well because Guardiola hates it. Yeah. Right, OK. Yeah. So it's, it's a word we used for that type of football. Mm. But actually the, the word as it was used in Spanish were, was an insult. It's Javier Clemente, the very sort of tough. Sam Allardyce figure is that too strong? <laughs> Perhaps it is. Yeah, he, he played six defenders in his 94 but, team. But he, yeah, he was... Uh, Craig Levine, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. He was the, the, the coach of um, Athletic, mm. of, of Bilbao uh, in the 80s. Had this big rivalry with, with Barcelona. And um, that Athletic side were, were renowned, as, as many Athletic sides were, for playing quite direct, quite physical football, very British-influenced. Um, and he was very sceptical of the, the you know, pretty, pretty passing of Barcelona. So when he said tiki-taka, it was an insult. 
And so that's why Guardiola reacts quite badly to it. Mm. But I think you know the term is just used differently in, in Britain mm. to, to Spain. Which is when we first kind of became aware of this yeah. thing we called Tiki Taka, mm-hmm. which he would call Juego de Posición. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I suppose this, that Xavi and yes, the carousel, as Ferguson called it the year beforehand, we didn't quite have the same effect. But I think when we realised that something different was happening, and I suppose it's central to everything Guardiola does, was I think it was about 10 minutes after the Eto goal in that game to give Barca the lead after one minute, when Iniesta just cut through the middle and 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 set it open. And Iniesta, who was told actually not to shoot before that game because of his, his leg muscle problems. But I think I remember the, the, I was in the overflow area because I was in a Sunday paper at the time and we were quite high up in the stand. Remember, you, you could clearly see from about 20 minutes on, Carrick kept turning to the United bench, kind of go, what do I do? Because mm. he'd, he'd been outmaneuvered. He had, no, he had nowhere to go. And I, I mean, I suppose the, the, the roots of that are why that happened is maybe given Guardiola played as a player and the foundation of his of his philosophy is yeah and and, that, and that's it isn't it when when this Barcelona uh, under Pep Guardiola got in full flow teams just it was like they were playing a different game and 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 they kind of went on to create this kind of i suppose uh, global entity that is is Barcelona now but of course Guardiola it's Barcelona through and through played there as a player under Cruyff was 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 pivotal in uh, in that dream team uh, Jonathan so you know when when fans think he's one of our own I'm not sure if they do in Spain or not <laughs> quite frankly uh, but with him it is absolutely oh, the case absolutely true and in a sense he's the second coming of Cruyff that um, he's he's in the the youth team uh, Cruyff gives him a debut he's hopeless Cruyff says my grandmother's faster than you and forgets about him for eighteen months. <laughs> He's then desperate for a central midfielder. Um, he, he's he's tried to sign Jan, Jan Molby, has been told he can't. Um, and so you know, he, he goes to the youth team to see what's there. And he's been told, oh, there's this kid, he's brilliant. You know, he, he, he's your man. And he's on the bench. And, and so, so Cruyff says, well, hang on, I want to see this kid. Why is he on the bench? Oh, he's too small. And Cruyff went mad. You know, nobody's ever too small in my team. It's about how technically good you are. He promotes Guardiola, and within half a season, he's a regular at the back of midfield, and absolutely essential to how they play. Physically, not not big, not imposing, not quick, but incredible tactical brain, and has all the technical skills, and becomes the sort of the um, you know, the, the, the 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 motor of the team. You know, everything goes through him, and and stays there, uh, yeah, right through the nineties. He's absolutely at the hub of the side leaves but then the previous year uh, it had come back in 2006 had taken on the the reserve side had done very well there and then gets the job ahead of Jose Mourinho after Rijkaard leaves Um, it's fair to say Mourinho never got over that I think it is fair to say um, (laughs) sorry 2007-8 he he came before and yeah 2008 he he gets the job and 2008-9 he eventually has this brilliant season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's remarkable. I mean, Miguel, when we, when we talk about scholars of the game, Pep Guardiola is one of them, and more so. Learning so much under Cruyff and so on and so forth, uh, and developing ideas. It's it, 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 the, the inside the mind of Guardiola is a, an intriguing thing. Well, that's the, I mean, in, in between, I suppose, his retirement as a player, and then when he went back to Barcelona, I mean, because of what Guardiola's done, it's almost you, you see this a lot with, with other coaches uh, who've just been players. And go, oh, he could be our Guardiola. We just just because they're former players, but I think what what obviously elevates Guardiola is that he didn't just have these ideas inherent or that he that he kind of picked up for so long and you know and had been really ingrained in him. He, in between his time 
after playing and then going back to Barca, he went to basically went, went on a world tour of a, a world educational tour of the game, and you know, you know, pick picked out people he admired. You know, went to kind of go and study with them for a while. I mean, we, well, it's fascinating. He, he went for you know, he finished his career in, in Italy, mm. and he goes to Mexico to play for a team called Dorados mm. under Juan Marlio, um, sort of this slight eccentric Spanish coach who has his very these very progressive ideas. And basically, that's, that's his education. You know, he's not he's not hasn't gone to Mexico because he really wants to play in in the Mexican league. <laughs> he's gone to learn under under Leo, yeah. and Leo's one of those coaches who. I think is a great theorist, but okay, you know, struggle to put it into practice. And then before he starts the job, he you know he goes to South America and he he visits uh, Ricardo La Volpe, who's another one of these you know, great South American coaches, great ideas man. Results on the pitch not necessarily great. Speaks to um, uh, Cesar Luis Minotti, who, I mean, apart from winning the World Cup with Barcelona, with with Argentina, didn't really do very much in his career and had a pretty miserable time as Barcelona coach. Mm-hmm. And then the great Marcelo Bielsa. And there's a story of him, you know, a seven-hour barbecue at Bielsa's house outside <laughs> Rosario, um, where Guardiola's poor assistant is sort of made to practice man-marking with a chair <laughs> as they kind of discuss these theories and ideas. But uh, you know, Guardiola has, has, has gone to these great theorists, but then the beauty of what Guardiola does is he puts it into practice and it works. It's not a great theory it's a great way to win football matches. Yeah, but but they didn't get off to a brilliant start, though, in, in his first season, Miguel, <laughs> of course. Uh, and uh, obviously the way it panned out, I mean, it, it seemed to be everything that um, Guardiola touched turned to goal. Yeah. But it wasn't the case early on. No, no, they didn't. It took them to, uh, three matches to win a game, mm-hmm. to win a competitive game. It was a long time for yeah, Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. I suppose there's even more to it than that because it's not just that he'd taken over. He'd taken over a side that looked like it looked like they were having another one of uh, what, what, what throughout Barcelona's history has been a periodic massive crisis mm. uh, because you know it'd been two years since they won the Champions League under under Rijkaard. Uh, they won that in two thousand six, obviously. Uh, it's two thousand and eight, and it just like everything about the club looked somehow, so. It was amazing how quickly it unraveled. From there's, all, there was a decadence there, yeah. And I think it begins actually immediately they win the Champions League. That their preparations for the um, for the Super Cup. Uh, you know the stories about Rijkaard hanging out with this this Dutch pop group, and you know <laughs> Ronaldinho on the day of the game going off to do a photo shoot. Um, so you know there's a lot of a lot of problems there with with personnel. And the first thing Guardiola does when he gets there is say, right, I'm going to get rid of Ronaldinho, Deco, and Eto. Mm. But I don't trust any of them. As it turned out, Eto persuaded him to give him you know, another season. But you know Guardiola well, was was ruthless, and mm. the people who think, oh, you know, anybody could have won it with that group yeah. of players, well. He actually selected the group of players yeah. by getting rid of the the deadwood, the people who were over the hill, mm-hmm. and he promoted Busquets and Pedro, who he he'd had in the youth team. So but, he knew exactly what they were. I mean, Busquets is probably as close to a player yeah. as you would get to Guardiola. I'm not sure mentally he's quite as as sophisticated, quite as you know. I don't think he sees the game or so quite as well as Guardiola did. In terms of the style of player, mm. you look at him, you say physically, you know, what what is he? Why, why is that a good footballer? Yeah, you look at what he does on the pitch, it's quite hard to explain. But his positional sense, his ability to be in the right place at the right time, to play the simple pass to yeah. the right person at the right time, was absolutely critical to how Barcelona How quickly play. he moves his feet as well. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. That's, that's something I mean, you could have heard about in Guardiola's first season at City, actually, that he didn't quite have that, that pivot in the same way. And, well, and that was actually, it was, it was speed of foot that was yeah. why he got rid of Joe Hart, even. Yeah, he yeah. He needs his goalkeeper to do that. Uh, so anyway, so just yeah. like, on, that, on that disappointing start, you know, they... They lose one 0 to Numancia, having dominated the game, hit the woodwork twice. They then draw again, facing Santander. They lose Santander in the Copa de Catalunya. Okay, much changed team, but he's actually booed 
But the fans who go to see this game on an artificial pitch in the north of Barcelona boo him. Mm. And Guardiola's sort of in this panic because if he loses the next game against Racing Santander, he could be the first coach ever to take Barcelona to the bottom of La Liga. <laughs> and so he goes to see Johan Cruyff, his great mentor. Cruyff, who, who I mean, has no official position at, at, at the club, but he's sort of this, this power behind the throne. He's the one who is pulling all the strings. Uh, he has a, a very influential column in El Periodico. And Cruyff says to Guardiola, no, keep going, this is fine, the results will come. And writes a column to say, this is the best Barcelona I've ever seen. This is 1.2 games and out of the coffee to Catalonia. Uh, uh, I'm actually trying to think of a cultural analogy for what Cruyff was at that point. Alistair Campbell? The spirit of the... Yeah. He's Richelieu, isn't he? He's, yeah, he's yeah. the on squeeze. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. he's the power that makes everything happen but has no... I mean, that was what Cruyff did. You know, he stopped being a coach age 49 mm. and remained the most powerful football, <laughs> powerful person in football for another 20 years. Yeah. But, it, but, the, but the endorsement of Guardiola... Oh, was, 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 was well important in, in the wider context, of course, as it proved to be, but also very important for Guardiola himself. Because yeah, and, what, and actually it happened with, with the reserve team as well. Like Guardiola mm. had some problems with, with discipline in the first couple of weeks and he went to see Cruyff and said, what do I do about this? And Cruyff just said, get rid of them, bin them. Yeah. It doesn't matter who they are, bin them. It's, make sure you do it your way. And he, you know, he did that. So I think Cruyff was quite important in giving Guardiola mm. sort of self-confidence well, uh, and self-belief to do yeah. it his way. Even in terms of the mentality, there was also the kind of the very tangible physical effects. I mean, I, I remember at the time that Guardiola had some, he had, had some rule about all the players to be a certain weight for their size and he felt a lot of them were kind of almost two kilos overweight. And at, at the same time, almost kind of someone that's become, you know, personification of all this was Messi, who for three previous seasons, I don't, I don't think he got a single season without a long-term injury. Uh, until Guardiola got his hands on him, gave him gave him a specific regime, cut out certain things from his diet, or instructed him to cut out certain things from his diet. Not that Messi always did that, and then suddenly he, Messi himself enjoyed this explosion. Well, actually, I think Messi did do that mm. under Guardiola. Yeah, yeah. I think he's gone back on the Sprite and the Milanesas, <laughs> but, um, which maybe is why he's a yeah certainly the last World Cup why he looked a bit maybe. yeah. Uh, but yeah, under Guardiola, I mean, Guardiola's tough. That's the other thing. Yeah, he's this great intellect and this great theorist. But he's tough. He doesn't let players get away with anything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's also critical to it. And it's also, I think, why players, I think we, we saw that at Barcelona, we certainly saw that Bayern, players get a bit tired of him. Yeah. And I think actually even as a player, there's an element of that, that Laurent Blanc said, um, it was almost like Yap Sam's description of, of the Neville's, that he was always there, always <laughs> yabbering away. Busy. And he was just, you're busy. Yeah, quite busy in the Yap Sam sense of a term. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for memorial day get 15 percent off your burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast and up to 25 percent off outdoor that's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> um, but do you think that, 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 that he would have learned that from Cruyff, the managerial style? You know, you hear about... Uh, about other coaches, you know, have influenced almost the personality of their coaching. You could argue maybe someone like Martin O'Neill and Brian Clough or something like that. But perhaps a better example might be with with the way Guardiola approaches things that, that Cruyff did. Yeah, and I, I think you see elements both of Cruyff and less obviously Van Hal. Mm. Uh, that um, Guardiola's definitely his 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 formation in the game, both in terms of growing up at La Masia at Barcelona's academy, which was founded by Cruyff. So growing up in that style, getting you know, being having those principles instilled in him, his you know his whole education in the game is a Cruyffian education, and then playing under Cruyff and becoming Cruyff's sort of mouthpiece on the pitch. Of course, even intellectually, philosophically, in terms of his belief that that position is the most important thing. You know, all of that he takes from Cruyff, but I think he also takes a lot from Van Hal, and I think he himself has said that Van Hal, in terms of direct influence, was the most influential coach he ever had. Mm. And and with going back to the final itself, the way Barcelona set up and or, or the way they played throughout that season, I suppose how kind of traditionally Barcelona or Cruyffian was it then, uh, Miguel? You know, you, we saw a lot of pressing, we saw the, the attacking football, the three up front, all that kind of stuff. And it was almost a continuation of, of Rijkaard, mm. as we we're, said. We're taking on another level, I think. I mean, they, yes. They, I mean, this is it. It just felt like basically it was the, it was the core Cruyff principles, but just significantly updated for the modern age uh, I mean it's worth in relation to what Jonathan was saying earlier about that era of football that and, he, and he, I think even Ferguson's United representatives given which was a departure from what they'd previously been but this, this is an area where uh, an era when it felt like defences are back on top where it was all about physical power was key you know as, as Greece made clear in 2004 Italy to a certain extent 2006 and then even, even United had got back to winning the Champions League through a very strong defence and counter-attacking. Whereas su- suddenly here was a team that was just, was willing to step forward in that way. I remember, I remember talking actually to some, to uh, you know, people who work in youth coaching after, about a few years after this, and that season, which, with Spain winning the 2008, or year 2008, and then, but then really, what Guardiola did, taking on from that, or sorry, I suppose it was, I mean, the two were connected, but Guardiola still took it on a level. He, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a different team, but with some of the same players. But, I mean, it's something now that we probably take for granted, but at that time, the, the, the key skill for your defender still wasn't his ability to take the ball out of defence, whereas Guardiola's changed, and it's permeated right through every single level of the game. And we, we see in how modern players are, are produced, but where the, the, the key requirement for a centre-back now is comfort on the ball. Mm. And yeah. a full-back has to be yeah. able to, to get forward down the, down the line, has, yeah. to, has to be able to cross the ball. And you know, who was United's right-back that day? John O'Shea. Yeah. <laughs> And that's the difference. I mean, okay, you can say that Barca had Puyol, but ideally he'd have been in the centre and they'd had Danny Alves there. If you're contrasting Danny Alves to John O'Shea, they're, they're, they're different types of player. Maybe yeah. Yeah, there's an Irishman in the room, we'll say they're different types of player. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Sunderland fan. But. Yeah, yeah, true enough. Um, but, it, but it's true, isn't it? And as Miguel said, that he took that kind of crossing stuff um, to the next level. And Barcelona, certainly Spain, but Barcelona almost became like the, the sort of unofficial home of football. 
in mm. the next sort of few years. But that season, though, you, you can't understate how impactful it has been through football, through even to grassroots level. I mean, even to, to the, the kind of level of football that you know I, I, I've played, you see teams yeah. don't just lump it forward. Yeah. That, that passing and so the influence has been utterly remarkable. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Mm. And, and you know, we've, we've had the discussion recently about this Real Madrid winning uh, four out of the last five Champions mm. Leagues. Are they a great team? And I think we both feel quite resistant mm. to that idea because they haven't changed the game. They, you know, they, they've been very efficient at the accumulation of silverware, but this Barcelona changed how we saw the game. Mm-hmm. They, they, there's a, this sort of scales from the eye, eyes moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think it almost, I almost feel that happened to myself midway through that second half. Go, I did not think this was possible. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah. A game yeah. of this level yeah. is not tight. It's not about not making a mistake. It's about just having the ball and the opposition cannot get off you. I think you saw United panic in this yeah. game. And the point Miguel was making about Carrick turning to the bench saying, what, what do we do? Because a team like Manchester United was not used to having 40%, 35% possession. That seemed an enormous humiliation. Where Manchester United, we have the ball. Mm. And maybe, maybe in certain games we'll accept having 40-45%. But we're still basically in control. The idea that you couldn't get the ball, that, that was completely alien. Now, what's changed is we're now used to seeing 70-30 splits of possession. And we're actually pretty comf- comfortable with it. Mm. And we don't necessarily think the team with 70% will, will win. But this was something unique. Yeah. Without dwelling on um, Mourinho again as well, but I think it pointed to a significant difference between Guardiola and Mourinho and maybe and this, and this split in kind of the historical evolution of the game in, in terms of, you know, Mourinho had become the, the most prominent, probably best manager in the world through a certain style, which is almost, which is based on ultimately safety first security and, you know, you know the physical protection uh, and to a certain degree, a lack of faith in technical ability. Whereas Guardiola was a little bit ultimate faith in faith in technical ability. It was it was, it was trust, tr- you know, and uh, tr- trust and a kind of confidence in expression. Yeah, and, and, that, and facilitating that yeah. through um, engendering in players an understanding of position on the pitch, so that when a man had the ball, he had minimum two passes in front of him and, and one pass behind him. So you know, Guardiola's whole system, his whole way of position, as he would call it, yeah. the positional game, we might call it, <laughs> you know, he, he divides the pitch into 20 zones. But, I mean, it's not as simple as uh, four by five. You know, some of the zones are different sizes, but essentially it's 20 zones. And in a horizontal zone, no more. You know, if, if three are filled, that's too many. And in a, in a vertical zone, if, if four are filled, that's too many. And the idea is if, you, you know, if you're not in a straight line, you're creating angles, so the passing option is always there. Mm-hmm. And you should never have more than one player when you have a ball. You should never have more than one player in a zone at any one time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the, the oddity of all that actually is, I was thinking of this watching City this season, and to a certain degree even, even Bayern Munich under Guardiola three years ago, even that 2009 final looks slightly... It lacks, lacks sophistication compared yeah. to how he would develop the team in 2011 at Bayern and then with City. Yeah. Well, it was his first season, Miguel. Yeah, yeah, of course. That itself represented such a leap and yeah. that there was still more... Because like, I remember like when you see Xavier Iniesta on the ball in that final, it, it, it was still relatively fixed. Mm. Whereas now with his kind of modern Bayern or City teams, it's, it always feels like one player has the ball in the centre. There's, and there's, it's, like, there's almost kind of this... Four players around them at all times always are taking. They're always in motion. These kind of wheels, endlessly spinning wheels. And I, you know, I think, think that, that point about lack of sophistication, comparative to yeah. now, is it's even more evident if you look at Spain in two thousand eight. Mm. At the time, we were watching that, going, "This is this is an amazing team." I can't believe a team of this technical quality 
you know, is a, you know, coming straight after Greece yeah. and winning the Euros and after Italy winning the World Cup. There was something incredible about it. Look at them now. Mm. And the football actually looks really basic and really yeah. ordinary. And that's the extent to which Guardiola's ideas have permeated and, and have changed what we expect from top teams. Uh, yeah, and one of the things is Barcelona side did in that season and obviously would go on to do quite naturally is is the pressing. And, and it's interesting because Samuel Eto'o, of course, nearly left, didn't he? And as you say, managed to persuade him. Yeah, Eto'o was one of those forwards who Absolutely would press. Yeah, and yeah. and, and it, so it was remarkable to think that if Eto'o had left, you know, what would have happened and all that yeah, kind I mean, of stuff. Guardiola's issue with Eto'o, I think, was less to do with a sort of a desire or, or a kind of willingness to work on the pitch. It's Eto'o um, was very critical of teammates. There was a player that season who, um, his wife had just had a child and the child was very ill. And so he was spending a lot of time in the hospital and often wasn't going to bed, was in the hospital overnight. And Eto was hammering him in training, kind of, what are you doing? You're not, you're not running. Well, the reason he wasn't running was because he hadn't mm. slept for 36 hours. Mm. And Guardiola was, you know, he was happy this guy was turning up for training. And yeah, he kept saying to Eto, come on, like, I'll do the discipline, you do the playing. And Eto kept going at him. So that, that was why Guardiola and, and Eto, why there's a tension there. Um, it wasn't to do with style of play. It wasn't to do with application on the pitch. It was to do with the personality issue off the pitch. Sure, but but on the pitch, that pressing that Eto would lead from the front was crucial to that side and that that Croatian principle. Yeah, and, as well. and you know, we we think of Guardiola and we think of this football as being about possession, and mm. obviously to, an ex, to a large degree it is. But when he gave his 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 first seminar to the um, European Coaching Convention, it was about getting the ball back. Yeah, because you can't have the ball if you haven't got the ball. You've got to get the ball to have the <laughs> yeah, that's ball. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that organised pressing to win the ball back and this idea that um, you, should, you should try and win the ball back within three seconds mm-hmm. uh, and that the, the opponent is its most vulnerable in that three seconds having won the ball back. Yes, yeah, so I win the ball off you and I've exerted physical effort to, to get the ball and my head's down because I've been winning the ball and maybe players have moved since I last looked up. That's when I'm vulnerable. That's when you've got to get the ball back. And if you don't get the ball back in three seconds, then you sit off and you, you resume your... Your, your 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 normal defensive shape, but instilling that three second rule is is very very difficult. I mean, Peter Bosch when he was at Ajax made it a five second rule. Guardiola was three seconds. It had to be that quick. So winning the ball back is absolutely crucial to to his philosophy. Mm. And as you said, Miguel Carrick and the boys that night certainly didn't manage to win the ball back very often. Uh, do you think that was because Manchester United they didn't have the team or experience to deal with Guardiola? And I suppose in subsequent years against Guardiola sides, very few people seems to ha- seem to be able to deal with it at all because it's just such an effective way. It's a, it's a, you don't have a plan B, the plan A is so flipping yeah. good. That was, basically, it was, a, it was a new challenge that, uh, that Ferguson and a lot of other managers hadn't figured out. And it was actually interesting to... I remember actually after that final, there was this, and it, it was particularly played up in the build-up to the 2011 final where Ferguson, some of the United players mentioned it, where Ferguson kind of said, oh, Ferguson knew what he did wrong in, in that uh, in that 2009 final, he was going to rectify it for 2011. He didn't really. I know, exactly, it felt like they played the same sort of way. Yeah, which was <laughs> remarkable, really. Yeah, I, think, I think the mistake he made that he subsequently acknowledged was um, taking off Anderson at half-time for Tevez. Yeah. So he basically you, you went to effectively a 4-2-4, yeah. but that just surrendered the midfield. Mm. But you know, you, you look at that midfield, and you, Carrick, Giggs, Anderson, it's not that mobile. It's not really surprising that, that a deaf team could pass away around them. So, and I, I guess there's, there's two ways of playing against Barca. You either push right up, get in their faces and press them high up the pitch, or you sit back and let them have the ball. And the problem was, teams hadn't worked this out at that point. And so they, United were caught in this halfway house. And I think this went on for sort of two mm. or three years, teams didn't work this out, that yeah. you had to do one or the other. And getting in their faces was 
incredibly risky because you risk leaving space behind you. But sitting back was incredibly risky because if they have seventy percent possession, they're going to have they'll eventually get their moment. And like you're hoping none of those fifteen shots fly in the top corner. <laughs> That's right. yeah. uh, but getting caught between the two stools, I think, is what happened to United both in two thousand nine and two thousand eleven. Yeah. You, the, the, there is no chance but the one, one difference between the two finals actually in, in 2009 I think United were just completely outmaneuvered whereas in 2011 they are both outmaneuvered and overpowered because remember at about 65 minutes in the 2011 final Tony Valencia was probably one of the, one of the fittest players in, in the Premier League if, if not Europe and I, he was trying to I think it might have been I can't remember exactly who it was but basically trying to track a Barcelona player he just fell into the back of them because, and it was you know it was <laughs> it's such visible evidence of a player exhausted. Yeah, I mean certainly Barcelona that night in Rome um, were just so dominant, and and this was the Barcelona side. This was the the team that we. Uh, so many people around the world loved this side because, as you say, Miguel, it was different from uh, the way Mourinho had done things. They attacked with flair. They were exciting to watch. They scored tons of goals. And so on and so forth. It was never boring watching them. And yeah, I think yeah. I think a lot of people would set time aside to watch this side, which was, I suppose, would you say, Jonathan, that's part of the sort of the Cruyffian legacy to to make attractive, play attractive football and entertain people? I mean, that's certainly what Cruyff would say. Yeah, um, <laughs> no doubt he would say that, yeah. I mean, or perhaps a byproduct of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a useful byproduct, it's a okay. useful stick to beat opponents with when they don't play that way. Um, <laughs> But because it came almost like a right and wrong way of playing. Yeah, no, they, they, yeah. There's, there's definitely a sense that Cruyff introduced a a moral, a moral sensitivity to football. Yes, a sense that the, we are we are the, the good people playing right way. We, we right. are progressive. This other way is is sort of reductive and negative. That quickly and and actually to be fair to Cruyff, that was probably always true of his teams, which is why they lived on the edge so often. You know, although they won the four titles in a row, two of them won on the last day of the season. In very fortuitous circumstances, um, and it's why they were so brittle and vulnerable, you know, as we discussed in the in the um, you know, in, in episode two. Mm-hmm. Um, Guardiola, I think they were a little bit cannier, um, but they didn't really need to be canny because he was just so much better. Yeah. Mm. Um, but I mean, looking back at Cruyff, the player, if you think of a '73 European Cup final, when they just held the ball, they took they took the lead after four minutes against Juventus. And passed the ball around, Juventus couldn't get it back. <laughs> yeah. That was sort of the sterile possession that, that Spain maybe would, were guilty of in 2010. So it's it's a very it's a fine line, but I think you can say of, of Cruyff's teams, and perhaps for say different reason Guardiola's teams, there was always that impetus to attack. There was foot- never that sort of that uh, that negativity, that sterility. On that though, actually, I was um, just before the Champions League final this year in, in Kiev. We would all the talk about Real's three in a row. I was looking back to uh, previous three threes in a row. And an interview with Johnny Rep about that final against Juventus, and he, he kind of starts going on. We always felt the criticism was very unfair because the problem with that with that final was basically just it was so easy for us. It, it was just such an easy game. That even even at one nil, they they knew that there was nothing. Juventus but there was, could... it was an element of making a point as well. Yeah, the yeah. Juventus were famous for sort of a, their, their cat Nacho for mm. very defensive football, and 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 um, Ajax basically went. Okay, get the ball, come out. Oh, you're yeah. not going to. All right, we'll just pass it around then. And it was Rep who got the goal, wasn't it? Yeah. After four minutes. Yeah. Actually, even in terms of in terms of the second goal of that game, which is probably Messi's real elevation into what, what I mean, because it was. I mean, I suppose as we discussed earlier, everyone knew Messi's talent, but because he'd been so, so injured for so long in his previous three years, I mean, Ronaldo had just been you know Ballon d'Or winner. There was still a sense that Messi was discovering his his true level. 
Whereas that was probably a leap, and it was there was a bit of historical symbolism a parallel there too, because he got a header in that ge- in that mm. game, which is something he'd been criticized for, and that was the exact same as seventy two, which is probably that Ajax's team's peak moment, and and Cruyff's peak as a player, in which he also got a header, a, a, a quality he'd been or a lack of quality he'd been criticized for. Yeah, I mean that that messy header, it's an incredible header. Yeah, well. it's yeah. a great cross from Xavi. It's two now. It's Messi. He's scored against an English club now. It's Manchester United at a crucial, crucial time with 20 minutes to go. But it, it's a proper sort of English number nine tenor. Yeah. It's so powerful, his boot falls off. The, 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 the yeah. sort of shockwave through his muscles makes his boot fall yeah. off. Yeah. Um, and that was 20 minutes to go. And I mean, that even if he hadn't it. scored it, we knew the game was yeah, over. Yeah, exactly. But that yeah. was absolutely rubber stamped. But that, that, yeah, that, even, even with that point, and as you said, United, United went to 4 2 4, but. They just couldn't get into the game. They couldn't get it to their forwards at all. I think Ronaldo was doing his typical kind of, you know, gesticulating everywhere at hand because he was so frustrated. Mm. One of the most dominant performances in a, in a Champions League final, certainly. And actually not as dominant as he hasn't left. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. But was... I mean, I remember we, we, we left the ground together in mm. Rome. We had a walk for, I don't know, about an hour and a half looking for a taxi. And I, I, I just remember kind of that 90-minute walk. Yeah. Kind of basically the entire conversation was, God, they were good. Yeah. Like, how good was that? Yeah. Like, what, what have we just seen? Yeah. Well, I, I was. Uh, I actually, my friend and I, we we were nice to get home on with sort of Manchester United fans, even though we were neutrals. And we got on the bus and we and we looked round at them all and went, "God, that that was quite." So, oh yeah, you're still upset about that. Yeah, yeah sorry about that. <laughs> do, 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 there was a lingering thing though, for basically until 2011, that that final might have been a bit of a freak. Do you remember all the discussion for two years? Like, oh. Spain's an easy league, you know, they're, they're, they can't defend properly, they're vulnerable, until basically 2011 really hammered the still point. still saying that now, they've won nine of the last ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, st- we're still not convinced, still not convinced, <laughs> but we're co- convinced of Cruyff's legacy, certainly. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. But thank you very much for listening, everybody. That was the fourth uh, of a six-part series to coincide with the, le- the release of the Barcelona Legacy, a book that explores how the evolution of today's game begins at Barcelona 25 years ago with the pioneering ideas of Johan Cruyff and was taken on by the likes of Louis van Gaal, Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola, of course, written by our panellist, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan, thank you for joining us once again. And Miguel Delaney, of course, uh, the chief football writer at The Independent. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.